Hello and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're, we're glad to have Jeff Griffith back with us to talk about peer review this time. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you. And as we discussed, um, I just want to make sure everybody listening today knows that all the opinions I'm rendering here today are mine. They're not the opinions of Baptist or my law firm. And that if you have any uh, legal, specific legal issues, since they're all fact dependent, you'll want to make sure you consult a lawyer about that. All right. Well, well. Now that we got all the all the fine print out of the way, uh, let's 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 dive in and, and talk about peer review. Um, I think most of the audience, most of the physicians, understand in some regard what peer review is, but but there may be some out there um, that are, are still new to the concept or, or just you know don't know. Um, I guess the details and nitty gritty about. Uh, what peer review is and, and why we have it. So can we just start with defining what what is peer review? Sure. So, you know, peer review is peers looking at one another, right? It's doctors, members of our medical staff reviewing uh, care provided by their colleagues and, you know, rendering opinions about the appropriateness of the care that was provided. Um, it's something that's required of us or when I say us a Baptist, with respect to uh, the accreditation standards, specifically Joint Commission requires peer review to confirm competency of providers both upon initial appointment and on an ongoing basis while they're practicing there at the hospital to confirm competency. So it's usually done by a hospital peer review committee, which is made up of physicians who hold privileges at that hospital campus. Um, and they would be looking at the care that was provided by their colleagues. And, and this is part of that overall structure of, of what you talked about before of, of medical staff being self-governing, right? So this is part of how we do that? Yeah, it's part of that. And it's also part of, you know, the, in order to, to maintain quality of care, you've got to have somebody um looking at what's going on, right? And so you have to have somebody that has both the expertise and the educational uh, background to do that. And the medical staff, right, as part of their self-governing function, looks at their own, so to speak. So, Jeff, this is impressive that you made it back for a third episode. So it really speaks to to the importance of this information. So thank I mean, you. I mean, I think only Jillian Foster has been on the program That's more right. times than Jeff now. That's impressive. Impressive. And now you spoke to initial and then also ongoing. So can you can you expand on that just a little bit more? Sure. So when when a provider applies initially for appointment to the medical staff, um, we have no familiarity with them other than what's been discovered through the credentialing process. We know about their educational background. We know about their work history. Uh, if they've done residencies and fellowships, we know what the reports are from those. Um, we've gotten peer reporting on them from their prior institutions, but we as an institution have not, not had an opportunity to look at what they do uh, in our facility. And so every provider, when they're appointed, goes under an initial period of what they call FPPE. And we can talk about that more in detail later, but that is focused 
uh, professional practice evaluation. And what that means is, is for um, usually a period of six months, um, every case that they perform or every contact they have in the hospital is going to be reviewed for its appropriateness because they're new to our staff and we just don't have anything um, really to base anything on other than what was given us through the credentialing process. Now, there's also ongoing professional practice evaluation or OPPE, and that's the evaluation that goes on for all our providers after they're here because, you know, a good peer review program ought to focus not only on just evaluation, but also improvement. And so one of the shifts that we've been working on at Baptist to make in that culture is, you know, traditionally peer review has been looked at like, I'll give you an analogy, it's like pulling weeds out of a flower bed. Like you're going through there and you're trying to um, remove those physicians who don't meet the mark that you're looking for. And while that is a purpose of peer review, that assumes that everyone that's left once you do, do that are all practicing on the same level, which we know not to be true. So the shift that a lot of institutions are making Baptist included is to, to recognize excellent performance and address poor performance, but also improve the performance of those providers who fall in the middle. So that's done through OPPE and an ongoing uh, review process. And, you know, I, I think you alluded to this earlier, but um, the peer review committee also reports up to the MEC who reports to the board. Is that correct? That is correct. And then the those that are doing the actual review process including FPPE and OPPE or, or members of the, the peer review committee? So the FPPE and OPPE falls under the umbrella of the peer review at the institution. And I guess to say it reports up, I mean, there's many things that don't make it to that level. There's a lot of things that can be dealt with on the facility level. Um, but, you know, in terms of like the FPPE for our initial providers, um, I'll give you that example. It rolls back to the credentials committee and we get reports from the various institutions that they we can let them out of FPPE because um, they did well and they were practicing well. Or sometimes if they have little to no activity, they remain under FPPE because there hasn't been enough to look at. And that information would roll back up um, to the MEC for approval just to show that that process has been done for accreditation purposes. And is it a physician or another provider that's reviewing these cases or who's actually reviewing those cases for the initial FBPE? Well, it's it's physicians. But when we say peer, and I think that's a good distinction to make, it doesn't necessarily always mean someone in the same specialty, right? Because in this day and age of departments and service lines, we know that sometimes there are certain procedures and certain things that go on that cross specialize, right? There's There's maybe certain things in the hospital that are done by both interventionist interventionalist and radiologists are done by both cardiologists and pulmonologists those types of things and so peer means they're physicians they're members of the medical staff but maybe not necessarily the exact same specialty and the exact same practice now is this information confidential so when a review is performed is it confidential it is and it's a, i think that's an important thing to point out because it's confidential as long as it's done within the confines of the peer review committee. And specifically, and I'll give you as an example, Tennessee. The, Tennessee, there is no federal um, confidentiality 
protection. All the protection that's provided for our peer review comes from our state law. And so Tennessee state law actually defines what they refer to as a quality improvement committee or a QIC. And a peer review committee would qualify as one of those. And so as long as you follow the procedures set forth for review for the peer review committee, then it will be protected. Now, if somebody just goes off on their own and does a review on their own, that won't be protected. So it's important. That's why we have policies in place, procedures in place, committees in place, because we want to follow that process to protect the information, the confidentiality of it, and to protect the providers that are being reviewed. So, so let's talk a little bit about the review process. So, you know, I'm a new provider, I make it through FPPE and I'm practicing. How would someone get reviewed? What would trigger, I guess, a review uh, for peer review for that provider? Well, when you say triggered peer review, that I guess you're inferring a focused peer review because everybody's getting looked at all the time um, right. with respect to, to on an ongoing basis. But a triggered peer review, uh, it could come from a number of different things. Let's say um, you applied for a new special privilege that you hadn't held previously, um, and they wanted to take a look and make sure you were confident for that new privilege. That might be a way. Um, it, you might have a um, adverse outcome, something that was unexpected, and they want to look at and make sure that you know there wasn't something there, or there could be a pattern of outcomes that are identified. Uh, maybe you have three or four uh, cases within a short time frame that all have unexpected outcomes, and so that's identified and that's looked at to make sure that there's not something relative to the provider's practice that needs to be addressed to avoid further issues going forward. So, Jeff, can you walk us through if there were, if I had a series of unexpected outcomes, what does that look like? So, let, let's say, um, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you were um, a surgeon um, and maybe you had uh, a series of mortalities um, that were unexpected on patients that weren't expected to expire as a re result of the procedure. Um, those cases would likely be referred to the peer review committee at your institution, and the committee would conduct a review. And what they would be reviewing, they would review not only the care that was provided, um, they would review the technique and the modalities of care that were chosen. Um, they would review the documentation, the medical record, not only for the uh, to show what was actually done, but to show that the indications for treatment and the method um, of, of, of treatment were how they were chosen and what was documented there. And then the case would eventually um, be given a score and the score would indicate um, that it either was cause for concern or it wasn't. Sometimes there is um, a request for the provider to actually provide input, because um, there can be questions. Sometimes the reviewers look at the chart and it's not clear why a certain um, decision was made or why a certain decision was not made. And so oftentimes they will reach out to the provider and say the committee has these questions and give the provider an opportunity um, to respond to those questions. And then once that process has taken place, a final score will be assigned to it and the provider will be notified of that score, any recommendations relative to possible improvements, and in the most egregious situations, um, it could result in a referral 
uh, in the manner that Jake was discussing earlier to the medical executive committee to determine if corrective action is warranted. And corrective action could mean anything from um, additional education, uh, proctoring, all the way up to and through uh, limitation, termination, and suspension from the medical staff. Okay, good. I, I was hoping we'd get to, I guess, what are some of the you know, the powers or the, um, you know, w- what are some of the actions that the peer review committee could take? But I, I'd also, you know, want to ask, you know, what are the, the responsibilities of the peer review committee? I mean, suppose they get a physician that's referred to them um, and everybody loves this physician, but he did something that was pretty egregious according to the scoring system, um, but they just want to ignore it because it's, uh, you know, one of their, their buddies and wanted to keep them on is, you know, w- what is the risk to the peer review committee there, if any? Well, so, certainly there's always a risk to the hospital when we're not fulfilling the obligations that are required under our accreditation standards and the obligation to confirm the competency of our providers and to remove those individuals who are not safe to be providing care in our institution is constant. So uh, to the event, to the to the extent that someone willfully ignores that responsibility, that could be dangerous um, for everybody. Now, that being said, I will say from personal experience, I can't imagine a situation where one of our peer review committees would do that. But we also have built into our medical staff documents, which we talked last t- time about, certain policies. And one of the policies we have built into that is what's called a conflict of interest policy. And so that conflict of interest policy is meant to deal with situations which, let's say, you and I are the only two OBs in town, and a case has come up of yours, and I sure would like to have your practice, because I'm new, and you've been around for a long time, and you sure do have a lot of nice patients that I would like. Well, that's probably a problem for me to be reviewing your case, because I've got a financial interest in running you out of town. Um, so I can take over your practice. So in those instances, you know, those that would be an instance where probably that provider should pull back, um, possibly weigh in on the review, but shouldn't be involved in scoring or taking any kind of action on it, because that provider does, uh, in that hypothetical practice in the same community, in the same hospital, so might have some relevant information to provide, but probably shouldn't be part of any of the deliberations or the vote on that. Uh, you know, other instances, um, and I think we were going to get to this later, but there are occasions where we have to obtain an external review of a case. And sometimes that's because we don't have the right specialty to look at it. But sometimes it's because of these conflicts of interest issues that you need a neutral person who doesn't, um, you know, doesn't have anything to gain one way or another to provide an opinion about what this provider has done in their care and treatment of the patient. And kind of along those lines, so you have a conflict of interest potentially, um, but what are the, I would say, what are the rights of the the person that's being evaluated? So suppose, you know, my, I got referred to the peer review committee, they, you know, found something and, and they were looking to uh, remove or revoke my privileges. What is the right of that person um, with regards to this process? So, so let, let's take it through the hypothetical. Let's say that the peer review committee has identified four cases which they feel like demonstrate um, that you as a provider are not competent and that you should no longer be a member of the medical staff. So the peer review committee would report that up to the medical executive committee. 
the medical executive committee at that point in time under the bylaws has a couple different routes they could take, but the most likely route that they would take would be to authorize an investigation, which would be to look at all those cases and determine, is this enough? Do we need to look at more cases in order to make some sort of decision relative to whether what we should do with this provider? And that more information could include uh, an interview with the provider themselves, having the provider come in to the medical executive committee, discuss the cases that have been identified and give their response to the criticisms that have been rendered by the peer review committee or by an external reviewer that was uh, retained by the peer review committee. Once that's been done, then the medical executive committee will make a recommendation. And as we were talking about earlier, that recommendation could be anything from proctoring to additional education to a limitation of your privileges or a restriction of them, suspension, all the way up to revoking your privileges and kicking you off the staff. If that happens, if, if something is done um, that triggers one of the requirements um, for reporting, then you would be entitled, if you are a medical staff member, to what's called a fair hearing. And so the fair hearing would be you saying, I disagree with this decision of the Medical Executive Committee. I want to appeal that decision. And what happens on an appeal like that is there is a panel of physicians that's chosen that are not part of that original decision, uh, usually three physicians, and then there's usually a member of an administration who acts as a um, the referee of the hearing panel, their ex officio, they don't have a vote. They just sort of act as the administrator of it. And you get to come in and put on your case and you can be uh, represented. You know, we've had several of those uh, over the years and there's lawyers that will come in and present their case. And really, this whole process, in addition to um, ensuring quality and safety in the hospital, has got to also be designed to be fair to the provider that's being reviewed. So that hypothetical you were asking me earlier about, you know, if there's somebody who is biased that's sitting on that committee or somebody who might have an ax to grind, well, we've already started an unfair process at that point, right? If we let them be part of the scoring. So the, the point in the fair hearing is, is to let the provider get all the information out that they believe is relevant and make sure that we've looked at this from all angles because you are entitled under the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act to immunity for these decisions as long as they're not um, taken in malice or, or bad faith. And so um, just because, you know, someone may disagree with the decision, that's not grounds for a claim against the medical staff or the hospital. It's got to be taken with malice or bad faith um, in order for the provider to actually have a claim against the facility or medical staff leadership. So I want to back up just, just a little bit. We know that the composition of our medical staff varies by entity and there may be conflicts of interest. You spoke about an external peer review process. So how does that work and, and can you give other examples of when that may occur? Yeah, so with an external um, peer review process, oftentimes it happens more, um, I think in the regional facilities, but it, it does happen here in the metro area too, that occasionally we either have so few of a specialty um, that we can't find a reviewer that we feel like maybe wouldn't um, have some kind of a bias, or there's maybe only one of that person. So there's nobody else to review it. And so normally what we'll do is, is 
um, we have relationships with other institutions. Luckily, we we're lucky enough that um, the leaders at our different facilities um, have colleagues around this region as well as you know around the country that we can reach out to to find providers to review the cases. In most instances, when we can, we try to find folks that are licensed. Um, in the same state or at least nearby these providers just to provide a regional flair for the review or whatever in case there are things that make it unique to this part of the country as opposed to maybe what they're doing in New York or L.A. or something else. But occasionally that's not possible because of how specialized whatever the individual do is doing is. Um, and so in those instances, um, those individuals become part of our peer review process for that particular provider's review. Um, they're required to enter in the confidentiality agreement. So, I mean, the same confidentiality that applies to the process applies to them as well. And then they'll actually do their reviews and score it for the committee members to look at. Uh, in the event we get into the scenario Jake was discussing earlier, where we actually have to go to the MEC and then potentially a fair hearing, those external reviewers will also be available to come and answer questions of the medical executive committee that they may have regarding the review and come to the hearing. And I guess I'll use this word testify, even though it's not a, a court hearing, but they'll come and they'll provide their opinions to the fair hearing panel relative to the case reviews they did. Thank you for that. You know, one of the things you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the fair hearing was um, reporting and the need to report. Uh, can you expand just a little bit on, on what you meant by that? Uh, I think you're talking about reporting to the, the National Data Bank, but can you tell us what that is and in what situations we have to report? So the National the National Practitioner Data Bank, its relevance to this context is, is that anytime a provider applies for privileges, um, one thing that is always done is that there's a query sent to the National Practitioner Data Bank about the provider. And there's certain things that have to be reported, and it includes um, medical malpractice settlements get reported, uh, licensure actions get reported. If you're terminated from a federal program, that's reported. Uh, being removed from certain payor networks could be reported, but relevant to this conversation, certain privileging actions get reported. And so if a medical staff takes an action to restrict or limit your privileges for a period of longer than 30 days, and that is based on um, clinical care concerns and competency, then that is a reportable event to the National Practitioner Data Bank. There's also things that a provider can do that forces an institution to report. One of those would be um, if you're under an investigation and you surrender your privileges um, while under investigation, the hospital or the, is required to report that to the National Practitioner Data Bank. If you're under investigation, and a lot of people don't know this one, if you're under investigation and you just don't reapply before the investigation is over, that is reportable because they consider that a surrender of privileges. So um, those are the types of things that would get in there. And it's obviously important because backing up to the beginning of my explanation on this, when a provider applies at a facility, um, this National Practitioner Data Bank is queried and that report is going to be given to the Credentials Committee and the Medical Executive Committee to consider when making a privileging decision whether or not to grant privileges. So most providers want to stay out of that data bank if they can. Um, and obviously, uh, privileging actions 
are things that can end up there. Okay, so you know, you said if they suspended the privileges for for longer than ninety days or thirty days, thirty days, thirty days, is there anything that would trigger an a, immediate reporting to the national data bank? You know, um, in the privileging context, no. Um, some of these others, I, I and I'll defer to what the guidebook says. I know they have a certain period of time within which they have to report it in. I will say that one thing, reporting in a different context that has to be immediately reported, is our bylaws require the immediate reporting of a privileging action at another institution to us. And that frequently does not occur. And I think it's something that people are unaware of, but certainly if your privileges were restricted or revoked at another hospital here locally, your failure to report it at Baptist is a violation of the bylaws. And so it's important to always report those things because failing to report that serves as a whole nother basis um, for discipline. So even if the, the Methodist or the other institution uh, suspension of your privileges turns out to be unwarranted, you may still be in trouble over at Baptist because you didn't follow our bylaws and report that uh, privileging action at that other institution. So, you know, I know, I think we've gone through the majority of the questions that I had, but but one thing um, is still a little fuzzy to me is, you know, suppose that there was a, a lawsuit from a patient uh, to the hospital and to a physician. Does the peer review process uh, get, and, and the I guess the discussions that occurred at peer review and, and decisions and the scoring that the peer review committee did related to whatever incident that was involved, make it to the the courtroom as part of that um that case it shouldn't absolutely not and that's that's the point of the um confidentiality statutes at least in tennessee and i know in in mississippi and our other states there are similar statutes but no it should not make it there because the point is you know there is a um public benefit to encouraging hospitals and medical staffs to look at the providers that practice in their institutions to make sure that they're practicing safely. And the last thing that anyone wants to do is to provide a deterrent to that. And in a litigation context, if every institution or every provider believed um, that doing a review could result in evidence against them in a medical malpractice case, that would have a chilling effect on any institution wanting to engage in that activity. So that's the point in the uh, confidentiality is that we want to encourage this because it makes it better for all of us um, when we've got good, competent, safe providers practicing in our hospital. Okay, great. That's that's really important. Um, so, Jeff? Thanks again for for coming on and doing this series with us. You know, we we certainly will have a lot more questions and hope to bring you back on in the future. But any last uh, words or, or thoughts for the medical staff regarding peer review? You know, I think we've covered the bulk of it. You know, I was going to say, you know, because there was a question I think maybe asked earlier that I wasn't sure I addressed or not, which was who makes up the peer review committee, who's on those. Um, the peer review committee is actually appointed by the president of the medical staff leadership council at each campus here in the metro area. And that when I'm talking about that peer review committee, that would be the peer review committee that's located there on the campus. Now, we didn't discuss much about it, but here in, for the Baptist Unified Medical Staff, we also have the Metro Professional Practice Evaluation Committee. And that committee sometimes 
will look at things that roll up from one of its member institutions, which would include the three campuses of Baptist Memorial Hospital, Collierville Baptist Women's and Children's and Baptist Memphis, uh, Baptist Crittenden, Baptist DeSoto, and Baptist Tipton. Uh, occasionally, those institutions, maybe for a situation you were talking about earlier, where it's a very tight medical staff, and so they're a little bit uncomfortable rendering an opinion, will roll it up to the Metro Professional Practice Evaluation Committee. And that committee is composed of the vice presidents of the medical staff leadership councils at each of those campuses and the chair of each facility's peer review committee. So that gives it more of a, I guess I'll call it a regional review, as opposed to just a review that is limited to physicians practicing there on that campus. All right. Well, well thanks again for, for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care at Baptist. Remember, if you find the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.